Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends. Oh, it's a good one. We are still on fire and we're well into November. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. This is one you must share with friends. Share it with your family. Share it with everyone you know. It's so good. Welcome back, my great friend. She's brilliant. Prachi Gupta. Prachi Gupta is an award-winning writer based in New York City. Prachi was a senior reporter at Jezebel and co-host of Jezebel's former politics podcast, Big Time Dicks. Always wanted to say that. She won a 2020 Writers Guild Award for her investigative essay, Stories About My Brother, which was also named one of the best essays of 2019 by Longform and Long Reads. Prior to Jezebel, Prachi covered the 2016 election for Cosmopolitan.com, where she set the standard for interviews with Ivanka Trump, her media matters, and she interviewed former first lady, yes, Michelle Obama. Her reporting on data privacy and discrimination for Marie Claire was included in 2021's Best American Magazine Writing. Her new debut memoir, They Called Us Exceptional, is available right now. So go and buy it. The Washington Post called it vulnerable, courageous. Gupta's resilience and her hope to be fully seen are an inspiration in both personal and political terms. Also, welcome back, my good friend Nimish Patel. Nimish is a comedian and Emmy-nominated writer based in New York City. He has written for Saturday Night Live, Chris Rock for the Oscars, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Aquafina, and he was a producer for Full Frontal with Samantha B. He has two specials available right now on YouTube. Thank you, China, with over 1.7 million views. And Lucky Left, a comedy special that documents his diagnosis with testicular cancer. And we talk about it on the show. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeustin. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends, especially you, TB, Stacy. It's because of you. We keep going. Oh yeah, Tamara, Erica. And now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, tank tops. They're all available. And don't forget it is hoodie season, so get your hoodies. Go to marinafranklin.com. Saturdays on my YouTube channel, I go live with my friends. That wacky Dave Juskow is there. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. Sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Be nice. And Black Lives Matter. I've got 
two close friends. Actually, not that close, but they became closer <laughs> over time. I've got Prachi Gupta. Prachi Gupta. She just wrote a really good book about. Well, we get into it, and Nimish Patel, <laughs> he's a comic, and he's going viral. Yeah! Woo! Bravo, bravo. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Best intro I've ever had. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. So I, you know... Prachi, Nimish, I have you both on because I like the chemistry we both had like in studio so many years ago before the pandemic. Um, I saw Nimish this weekend and he has uh, actually read your book. Nimish, you said you read her book, right? I did. I did. Thank you for reading it. Thanks for sending it. Yeah, how come you didn't send it to me? I think I emailed you about it, <laughs> but I can, I can send you a copy. No, I'm going to buy it. I'm actually <laughs> buying it right after. Cause my whole joke on stage lately is that I haven't read a book in a year because I smoke so much marijuana. I just can't get off this page of one page and I just can't <laughs> do it for some reason. Um, but your book, they called us exceptional was reviewed very well. It, it's a win. It really is. I mean, like when I when I see the reviews about your book, this one particularly um, by is it called Guernica? Guernica. Guernica. You could see I don't write books enough to know like, <laughs> that how important they are, but they are very important. Editor in chief Moore Nagarambi. Nagarambi. Gina Moore Nagarambi wrote, it's not very often that the word necessary in a book review feels well necessary and yet more than perhaps any other book to come across my desk this year. I want to shout from the mountaintops and the depths of the sea, upward, downward, and everywhere in between that you must read this book. Journalist Prashi Gupta has penned one of the most gripping blends of memoir and reporting, writing a book whose page-turning is compelled as much by masterful macro-level storytelling as by memoir, by turns angry and achingly vulnerable. Now I'm going to ask you, Nemish, you've read this. Is, did you read it in one day like this? Oh, no, it took me a, a few flights, but I, I, did, I did get through it, yes, for sure. I enjoyed it. Prachi, thank you for sharing your story. It's always fun to me to see, not fun, but interesting to see people like what would assume have grown up one way and then immediately through the book, you see all this. These are the things that this person has been through. And it's just your book was no shortage of that for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And that's part of why I wrote it, because I think it's really common for Indian Americans, especially under this lump of the like know, model minority stereotype, which is a ridiculous stereotype. Like there's so many assumptions that people make about who we are and what our lives have been like. Is that what inspired you to write the book? Well, I mean, what inspired me, I mean, I honestly, like I never wanted to write a memoir. I really never wanted to write about myself. And I wrote it because, um, so when last time I was on the podcast, we talked about the essay that I wrote about my brother's death and 
how that opened up a conversation about like masculinity and specifically like uh, masculinity for Indian Americans and mental health. And in the aftermath of that, I heard from so many people, like I got emails from men from Asian men who were like, I was going down a similar path as your brother did. And it made them realize that they were dealing with depression and like that they needed help. I heard from sisters who were like, I don't know what happened to me and my brother, but your essay helped me understand what he might be going through. And it gave them a different way to look at their, their siblings and, and try to talk to them. I heard from moms who were like, I had no idea what my kids might be going through raising them in this country, like immigrant moms. And reading the essay made them start talking to their kids about their mental health. So it was really when I realized that, like I had always grown up thinking that I was the only like fucked up Indian American kid. <laughs> like everyone presented themselves as so perfect and I just didn't feel like I fit in. And I thought that I was the only kid or my brother and I were the only ones. And when I saw the response to this essay and how many people felt so similarly, I was, I mean, I was shocked. And it made me realize that these experiences are really common, but we don't know how to talk about them and we don't really feel safe in talking about them. So that's what really motivated me to write the memoir is that I, I wanted to normalize all of this, this confusion, this alienation, these feelings that we have about growing up under the weight of this myth. And then also that the pressure that we have from our own immigrant and diasporic communities to present a certain way as, as minorities. So yeah, so the book came from that really. And also just always feeling like I was, you know, living, living sort of this double life. And I think that is a very common feeling for a lot of children of immigrants. And I wanted to vocalize that and, and break, break some of the images we have of this like good immigrant narrative and who we have to be. Yeah. That's great. Cause we just had on Aparna Nanchurla who also wrote a book about imposter syndrome. And I had asked her that question of how, how typical is that for someone from I'm right Hindu culture, right? To speak out about like mental health. Mm -hmm. It's not, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it seems to be definitely not. <laughs> now, Nemish, I didn't know, like, do you go through this where you feel like you I mean, you're a comedian, so I kind of always assumed you reveal more on stage than what's typically accepted, maybe culturally. Yeah, I mean, at a high level for sure, I think what what really resonated with with me with through Prachi's book was, obviously I haven't gone through the same set of experiences, but a high level, the idea of you're expected to be X um, and now you are Y, you feel like Z. And in her book, she relays both what her father and her, her mother and brother were likely or trying, tries to distill what they were going through and the feelings that they had about living in this country, expectations that were put on you and the expectations you're supposed to live up to and how those expectations can combine with all other kinds of trauma, how they can transform you into who you are and really impact your day-to-day, -day, your just like your behavior and, and then how you act towards everyone around you. 
at a micro level, for sure, like I, I wanted to be a doctor, and that wasn't because uh, of society's expectations. It was maybe my parents had incepted me into believing I wanted to be one, but it seemed like a cool thing to be. And then, and I was also a finance major, and then you graduate college, and I'm neither one of those jobs. And and then that I wasn't conscious of what I was going through, that I was angry at myself for not living up to expectations that were placed upon me. But if you look at my behavior, you know, from drinking and going out and all that, like, and, and just my general mindset at the time, if I look back at it, how I perceived the world, it was definitely that, you know, it was this sort of feeling of, oh, I was, I thought the world expected me to be this. And I really thought I was this, like super smart, ready to co- tackle anything. Lo and behold, uh, I'm living back at my parents' place, not with a job, thinking, man, I'm an idiot, I fucked up, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start comedy and that kind of cycle starts in a different place, but it starts anew, right? Now I'm like, now I have expectations to be successful in this field that I've taken on because I'm a brown person and brown people are successful at the things that they do in general. And here I am not succeeding. And that starts a cycle of, of man, I feel like shit, I'm, I'm fucking up everything. And, you know, I think the earlier people teenagers, young adults, 20-year-olds recognize that set of emotional parameters or emotional impact that that, those expectations can have on you, that the earlier they can make changes to not feel that way and then not have to have the depression or anger issues that Brachi's father had or the the depression or or whatever issues Brachi's mother had and then her brother and herself and so yeah long story in short read Prachi's book it's great it definitely uh, resonated with a lot of things I think a lot of us go through and it articulates them well for sure wonderful I think that's important I also wonder how many challenges you had Prachi in writing uh, in the aftermath of writing the book I guess of people saying why are you putting this out there we don't want that to represent us or I've seen some of the interviews where they ask you, do you talk to your parents? Do they know about the book? Do they? And what are, what are those challenges? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, this is something that I agonized with a lot, like through writing the book too. I mean, there were so many times where I was like, I can't do this. I, this has never really been done in this way before for our community And it's really scary. I'm going against everything that I've been taught, everything that society expects from from us as well. And I really, really questioned myself through this process. But there were a couple of things that sort of kept me going. One was therapy. Um, I talked a lot about like how, you know, my reasons for wanting to do this in therapy. And I kept coming back to like this idea that, you know, if, if my brother were still alive and there was still a chance that we could reconcile or even just have a really shitty relationship, but like something, I don't think, I know that I wouldn't have written this book, but he died. And I had so much 
rage and grief over his death specifically because of the way it happened. Like it was just so needless. And if he had had, if he and I had both had had a book like this or a resource like this when we were younger, then maybe we could have had the, started having the conversations in our family that we needed to have to be, to help him make other choices, to help us save our relationship. And so the thought that like, if I could use my story to help another family, another set of siblings out there uh, prevent coming, coming to the same fate that my family did, then it would be worth it to share this. I mean, worth writing it to share this. And I, and I felt because I saw the response from the essay, I believed that that could happen. I believed that my story really could help other people. And, and, and I'm finding that that is the case that I, I, I get emails every single day and, and messages every single day from people of all backgrounds, but, but like a lot of South Asians, a lot of South Asians, not just in America, but around the world. And they're saying that, like, I've heard from one reader said they saw themselves in my brother and said that the book made them realize things from their their siblings' perspective. And now they were going to have a conversation with their sibling, acknowledging their perspective and making space for their feelings and helping repair. Like, and, and that's just one of the messages. And I'm getting so many like that. So, like, yeah, it was terrifying, but to put this out there, but I feel like, you know, the reason to not do it would have been the same logic that kept me quiet, that kept this happening, kept the dysfunction happening. And if I want to help break that cycle and help change things, then the only way that happens is when we speak out. And so how can I, you know, advocate for other people to do that if I can't do that in my own life? So for me, it was really important to, to, to put this book out there, regardless of what those consequences might be. And I think with regards to my parents, I think that we tried everything for repair that I could. And I still, I still want that. I still hope for that. But I also understand that, that I can't, there, that there are limits. Like, like I live in a place of acceptance now, which is that when Oh, in, in Buddhism, there's a there's a saying or a learning about suffering, which is that suffering has sort of two arrows. The first the first arrow that causes us pain is the event itself, and then the second arrow is our relationship to that. So us trying to deny it or dismiss it or say it didn't happen or it's not there or wishing that it were different. And I think that what I've come the point that I've come to, especially with writing this book, is that. I, I live with that acceptance. I understand that the things that I wanted didn't happen and I can, and I, and I can live with that now. Um, and so whatever happens next, like it requires the only way we move forward and the only way even for reconciliation to move forward is through that acceptance of seeing somebody and seeing a dynamic as it really is rather than what we wish it were and then making a decision from that space. So whatever happens next with my parents, like I love them and I will never not love them um, and I will never not hope the best for them and I will never not hope that we can come back together and reconcile. But reconciliation doesn't mean forget everything that has happened. It means acknowledging what has happened, taking accountability and healing. And that doesn't happen by ignoring the past or denying the past. Which is 
America's problem. Um, <laughs> I noticed that you don't mention trauma and someone mentioned that you really don't use that word a lot. Was that a choice to not use the word a lot in the book? Yeah. So it's it was trauma and specifically abuse that I don't really mention. And I think, you know, I did that very consciously because I think the word abuse is it puts things into very black and white terms. So I think it's it's an important word. It's helpful to name a behavior or a trait that is really toxic and damaging and causing pain. And it's it can be empowering. And I think it's it's necessary. I also think that in the context of talking about somebody you love, it can be really hard to like people are not black and white and abuse. I think the term signifies the sort of black and white, like binary where something is all bad or someone is all bad. And in my book, I wanted to show the realities of abuse and what it really feels like and what it is like to love somebody who both like hurts you deeply, but also is one of your biggest supporters. And I think that's a really relatable common dynamic that a lot of people live with and especially coming from a diasporic context when you're you are dealing with abuse a lot of mainstream research or you know writing about it revolves around white families and there's a lot of conversation about just like cutting off a family member or being basically like things that when you when you have a diasporic community and this person might be your only tie to that community, you're when you make make a hardline stance like that, you're also risking losing all your connection to your ancestral homelands, to any idea of culture that you've had, to all your entire support system, and so it's it becomes even more complicated. So really, what I wanted to show was how abuse is rarely a black and white issue when we're living it, and. Um, and I hope that by showing what it really feels like, I can also normalize like these experiences, not not to justify them, but to say that they're really common. And it's abuse isn't just physical or sexual. It can also be emotional and psychological. And I wanted to show the toll that that takes on us and how it affects our sense of self. Oh my goodness. I Like as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how this relates to even me. Like culturally, I'm not obviously Hindu, but just sibling family structure as a comedian <laughs> wanting to put some of the stuff out on the stage i you've just kind of inspired me i'm just letting you know <laughs> to put more than i have in the past about my family on stage i i've i've held back at times because i i could still feel my father who's not here going don't you put that out there don't you say that about us so, Nemish, I would ask you that, like, do you, f- well, I feel like, I don't know if you do that. I haven't watched your act, I'm going to be honest, in why in a while, but I see that you're on tour. I see that you've put a lot of vulnerability out there in your past two specials, and they're doing quite well. Do you get the same response that Prachi gets from your audience, like, um, things out there that may not typically be out there from Hindu culture. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think as a, a as a group of South Asians, I just want to correct Hindu culture is like we're talking about religion. It's, it's, it would South thank Asian you. is a better term. Yeah. Okay, thank uh, you. Because I didn't know what to say. 
I was debating. No, 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 I, just said, <laughs> I was like, what do Hindu I say? Is, Hindu culture is a whole nother thing. And the last oh, okay. time I said some shit about Hindus, I got in trouble by, by a bunch of Hindus. But okay, that's so South Asian culture. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Because yeah, yeah, sure. that is a good question. Because I I keep one, when I even when I had a Parna on, I was like, do I say Hindu? What do I say? Do I say Indian? Do I say South Asian culture? Thank yeah. you. Indian is fine. South Asian is fine. Hindu is like a super specific. But anyway, from the last two specials for sure, I think, and even the hour that I'm putting out now that I'm working on now on the on the road, it's like it it definitely resonates. Different pieces resonate with different people because obviously everyone has something specific that they've gone through that I may mention, right? What's really, what's cool to see is being the person that is okay talking about it that makes someone else be like, oh man, thank you. I didn't realize that that's what I was going through or I didn't realize that that was a thing or I went through the same shit. Like, wow, uh, it's good to know that I'm not alone in this kind of thing. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, the kind of the key takeaway for me is that I'm in one way or another helping someone feel just a little less alone. And if that is the least uh, of the thing I'm doing, then I'm happy. And if, if beyond that, I'm saying, if I'm inspiring someone to go to therapy or even have that initial conversation or talk to their mom about something or their dad about something or their brother or sister about something that they wouldn't normally talk about, whether it be like, hey, what'd you think of that movie that he was talking about? Or we also had anger issues growing up. Should we go talk to somebody? What, whichever one of those on that whole range, then, you know, I've achieved the, the second goal of, any of the stand-up that I, that I do, the first goal being, you know, obviously make people laugh. So yeah, it's I didn't set out to be, or nor do I seek to be, a pioneer in that kind of space of just like opening the door for conversations. I think it's a a great consequence of the things that we're doing. But I don't know how you feel, Prachi, but all the stuff I do is for me, right? It's like I, I'm I'm talking about the things I'm talking about because I need to talk about them. You know, I'm and I've gone to therapy. I've go to therapy, just talk therapy, not like anything specific. But when I started therapy, I just put out the Lucky Lefty special about having undergone testicular cancer. And what I told my therapist at the time was, like, I don't really feel any emotions about it. Like you talk to people who have gone through like real cancer, I don't mean to diminish testicular cancer, but my testicular cancer didn't feel real. It was like three days of uh, of having cancer and then going having surgery. Like So I had it for no amount of time whatsoever. But you talk to people whose journeys with the disease have been a lot longer, a lot more painful, they have this emotion of anger or sadness or anything in between where I told my therapist, like I didn't feel any of that. And she said to me, well, when did you start talking about it on stage? And it was like, I talked about it immediately. And it was exposure therapy in that sense. Like I was able to expose myself to what I was going through constantly. And and through those iterations, I was able to quote unquote heal or deal with whatever emotions I was going through. And I think any sort of artistic endeavor, whether it be writing a book or a memoir or getting on stage or writing a song or even just, you know, listening to that kind of stuff has that kind of a transformative power over a long term or short term. For me, it was a very 
iterative process, talked about it ad nauseum for literally a year on stage via jokes and writing and crafting. And so that was it for me. And then I'm glad people were able to find whatever they found in it that resonated with them. And this time is no different. I'm talking about therapy. I'm talking about growing up Indian. I'm talking about expectation management, drug use, whatever it is. Um, And hopefully people find something that resonates with them within it. Did you did you find because I did not know and I'm sorry I didn't know Namish that you had been diagnosed until I, I, I was googling your name and I saw everything and I was like oh my god I like I, I've I've well I haven't been around you in a long time so you know mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I I didn't see you or I didn't reach out because no I you know I had breast cancer you know that right yes you knew that but it was like I know how it sort of change the way I perform or the material that I gravitate towards. Did it mm-hmm. Did it do that for you? I mean, for the, after I came off my first tour, the Thank You China tour that ended in January of 2022, I had nothing that I was really talking about. Um, and I had a slew of dates lined up for the next tour and come, like I was going to be out back on the road and like, March or something. And come February, it was my birthday. I was at home and like my balls hurt and I had to go to the hospital. Lo and behold, I had testicular cancer and it was like, oh, okay. Thank you, God, for this new hour that I, that I got out of it. <laughs> and, and so for that year, it was for the, that number of months or whatever, those road dates, was like, this is what I have to talk about. I got to figure out like how to turn this into something beyond just a two minute bit. After the whole year, I was like so sick of talking about myself. Like I, I felt so not narcissistic, but you know, self-involved. And I think that's maybe, Prachi, maybe why you felt like, oh, I don't want to write a memoir or whatever it is. Like, I, it just feels so selfish, and, for lack of a better term. And, and so now, after I got done, with, but I also knew I had to do it. You know, it was like, otherwise I had cancer for nothing, almost, it felt like. And maybe if I put that out there and one person figured out that they had cancer, testicular cancer, then then I then it did its job, right? Like but after that, it made me gravitate towards material that was nothing to do with me necessarily, outside of it being just my point of view. Like whatever my point of view of the world is, which is it shaped my point of view in the sense that I'm like, what are we like if I can laugh at losing a testicle, um, then you should be able to laugh at literally anything else that I put forward in front of you, or at least at least a lot of stuff, right? Like I have some perspective on life um, and maybe that gives me some license to talk about things that you wouldn't normally think I'd be okay talking about. So it made me gravitate towards not darker stuff, but just like stuff that would other be otherwise nece- be like third rail-ish. I'm like, nah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go there. I'll talk about it. Fuck it. What's going to happen? You lose, take my other ball. You know, like that was, that was really it, you know? Right. I agree with you. Like, it does change sort of your... Well, it gave me a little bit more confidence in knowing that I was a funny comedian, in a sense, that just didn't sit in the tragedy of my uh, situation. Prachi, you know I've lost a sister. And so the sibling... You know, I've never gone on stage to talk about that. That was too much. But I do know... I do remember the moment that I got on stage afterwards of so so much grief that's when i realized i was a 
a comedian. That gave me the validation that I was a comedian because I could not only could I still do it and make people laugh, but I was actually helping, uh, helping myself and helping others. And it was just like, okay, I'm I'm not stepping away from this craft. It's really who I am authentically. This is what I have to do to survive as an artist. So I, I really appreciate that you did that, Namish. And I'm going to, and it's doing quite well. That special, is it called The Lucky Left? Lucky Lefty. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Has over was it like five million views? No, Is no, it? no. It's probably like five hundred thousand or something like that. But yeah. okay, well, that's it's, a lot. It's working. I, look at me. <laughs> I just gave you a prop there, uh, Thank but you. no. <laughs> but your special before has a million views. Yeah, it's got one point five, and the one before that has like one point two or something. So yeah. Slowly but surely tracking. The clips are doing what they're supposed to do in that they're selling tickets and resonating with people. So that's all I can ask for. I remember you having that conversation with me in the stairwell about TikTok. And I was like, what is it and why? And you were like, Marina, you should do it. It really helps like your tour. Like, Mm -hmm. can you speak to that? Was it TikTok that did that for you? Yeah, I mean, the reason the the first hour that I put out was called Thank You China was because that was a, a real a real thank you to, to the Communist Republic for creating TikTok and allowing me to disseminate all my stand-up amongst the population that China is now spying on. I'm glad I was able to help with the data aggregation. But it's the truth, you know, like, it was TikTok that helped me uh, spread the stand-up everywhere at least for the first tour and the second tour. And it really is a great uh, distributor of attention deficit disorder. And it's done wonders for me. (laughs) That is awesome. I love that. Because I often, it's like I'm still, it's like the conversation right now with like agents and stuff. Every This is all I hear. I was telling Prodigy this before. This is all I hear now from comics is content, content. I'm like, what about the jokes? What about the jokes? What about the jokes? It's like content, right. algorithms, content, algorithms. Like, what do you have to say for that? Like, you, I know you're, well, you're a writer. You wrote on Saturday Night Live. You've always been a writer. So I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the younger comedians out there who don't. I think the, the smart ones, the ones that are... are medium and short-term, medium and long-term thinkers know that it's unsustainable to just do crowd work. It's unsustainable to not actually have an act. You know, yeah, sure, you might be able to have like 20 minutes and get yourself a Tuesday at a random club, but if you disappoint those 300 people that come to see you with your 10 to 15 minutes of jokes that are mid and then... 35 minutes of crowd work that anybody could have done that's flash in the pan shit and you don't want that and and I knew that going into what I was doing right like it was I knew that I had shout out to the comedy seller for being ahead in the the videotaping sets game I had dozens of sets recorded hours and hours of jokes that were old that I could throw away that had no concern about uh, people seeing on the road and being like oh we saw that shit on the internet already and then on top of that, you do a bunch of shows, turns out people will talk to you, uh, at least at some of them. So just from a numbers perspective, it was like, yeah, of course I'll get crowd work clips because that shit just happens. Um, if you do enough shows, you do five shows in a weekend, turns out two of the shows, someone will be annoying in some way or another or be worth talking to. 
from a from a to what I would say to the to the new comics would just be like just be mindful that this is a long game that you're in and nothing will make up for having nothing is better than having high quality jokes quality always wins in the, at the end of the day and I know it's easy to see bad quality doing well but good quality is is working is is working on its craft and and putting itself out there so that's what I would say. Thank you. I yeah, shout it on a megaphone. And also, like, with your audiences, are your audiences diverse, or do you find like do you find like white people are coming? Are they like curious? Uh, I, I have a. I, I can I can say proudly that I have a very uh, diverse audience. The first two the first two hours, like that, the first two tours, I saw. People like twenty-year-old Indian kids and like eighty-year-old white ladies coming out. Like everyone in between. Like I said before, TikTok is is so good at um, getting stuff to people who it thinks will like um, the thing that is they're being served. Now, as I on this theater tour, the Fast and Loose Tour dot com, please buy tickets. Uh, as I'm as I'm on the tour now, I think I'm slowly starting to penetrate the South Asian community. Indian people tend to be late to shit as it is, and that's not a knock on us. It's just that we got we got other things to do, uh, and, and now I'm seeing more Indian people come out. But even that is a unique feeling for me because it's not just like the 30 year old Indian people that I think would be coming out. It's like the 60 year old Indian guy bringing his you know 70 year old Indian daughter, or the 20 year old Indian daughter bringing her. 60-year-old Indian parents. Like, that is, I think, I'm not sure how many other comics have gone through that in my peer group. I'm sure, I hope a lot of them have. But for me, it's, like, such a cool thing because my generation of of uh, Indian uh, kids did not t- say, hey, mom and dad, let's go see a comedy show together. Or, hey, son, let's go. I'm going to bring you to see, you know, this comedian at a comedy club. Like, that was not a thing for our generation and definitely not the generation above. And so it's cool to be part of that experience, to know that I'm a lot of these people's first stand-up show. Um, and then I've become their first comedian ever that they've ever seen. And the, and the entire family's favorite comedian. You know, that's a that's a very cool feeling that to know them being passed around on the WhatsApp and the group chats. You're dispelling a myth that I thought, which is that the Indian audience goes out to support you no matter what. I thought Indian like people are are star fuckers. So <laughs> unless it's the truth, unless you're a big ass name, they don't. They're not gonna like, who the fuck is that? Um, until now, oh, I think. And this is this is not just me, but it's just comedy in general, stand-up comedy in general, as it becomes more and more a cultural thing, just the education of the audience across America, that including Indian people, is happening that comedy is a thing to do. You know, it's like a, a it's just like bowling or watching a rock show or whatever. It's just an evening out to have fun and and you don't it's not a heavy lift it doesn't cost as much as like going to a concert will do you can just go to a local comedy club and have a good time or if you don't have a good time it only costs you you know 25 30 bucks or whatever it is that night and so indie people in the past Aziz Hassan uh, Russell they were going out cuz those were 
the guys, right? Those are like strong. Those they're on TV. We know we have to know who these people are. We gotta go see them. Now it's oh okay yeah let's go. Oh, is any guy doing something? Yeah, sure. Let's go check it out at a comedy club. Oh, we never heard about this. Let's go see comedy. And then oh, lo and behold, it's one of us. Like it's a different it's a different audience going out for a different reason. Um, and it's cool to be part of that trend for sure. Well, this is one of those questions that I get annoyed that I get, but I, I have to ask you this now that you're mentioning it because I didn't realize, like it is, I didn't think about this, how this is kind of new culturally um, to go out to see a comedian in this way. So who was it for you that inspired you to do stand-up? What comedian? Uh, well, you know, I'm not one of these comics that's a student of the game or that was a student of the game before I started, okay. right? Like, so the, the my favorite comedian growing up and my favorite comedian to this day is Chris Rock. But that was because, like, I think, what was it, 99 or 90? I don't know when it was Bigger and Blacker came out. But when Bigger and Blacker came out on HBO, it was a cultural moment for every for America, right? Like he opened with a, a Columbine joke and and then went on to talk about Clinton and Robitussin and all that. And I remember that special because all of my friends in in high school were quoting it back and forth. Like that was it was so funny to us. And then I graduated high school it was 2004. 2004 I started I was a freshman at NYU. This was when Russell Peters YouTube special had just leaked. And that was like, in the Indian community, that shit was like, like a secret handshake, but like everyone knew it. Like my, my, the only other Indian guy on my floor brought in my, in my dorm was like, yo, come check this shit out. And we watched it and we're like, yo, this is crazy. This guy's nuts. It's so funny. And to the point where I showed my parents, like they watched it, like, oh my God, who is this? What? This is hilarious. But I didn't think anything of stand up until, 2009, right? Like I saw Dave, the first, first and only comic I saw live before I started comedy was Chappelle, 2004, Comedy Cellar. I remember because I was a freshman, I'd been barked in because I was walking on McDougal to get pizza. And this was, in, you've been in the cellar a long time. Like in 04, the cellar, <laughs> the cellar was not the cellar. Yeah, it was just like eight thirty people on a Tuesday night, and Dave was on. I got barked in. I was like, "There's no way Dave Chappelle's here." I knew the name because of the Chappelle show, but I didn't think anything of it. Go on stage, Dave is right there, and I watched for like thirty minutes before I was like, "I gotta get the fuck out. I gotta go study." Fast forward, I graduate college, two thousand eight. Did not get a finance job. Did not get a. That was not pursuing medicine anymore. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I took a writing class like in mid 2000, uh, at the top of 2009, hated it. And then I remembered, oh yeah, I like making people laugh. And I think I could write jokes like Chris Rock writes jokes. You know, I think I could make people laugh in that way and deliver jokes in that way. I think I could do stand up or let me try it. And I started, I got on stage at the Stress Factor in Jersey and that was it. Like I did my best Chris Rock impression. Um, I didn't bomb. My cousins, well, my, all my cousins were there, uh, so I had that support system, and that was it, really. But even for the, all my cousins, that was the first time they'd ever been to a comedy show. Oh wow! Yeah. Like, like in my community, I'm the f anyone 
who goes to a comedy show now is like, yo, do you know this person? Do you think you can get his tickets? Like, it's now it's become a thing. Like, the bubble has grown for my, our community. But before that, if Indian people went to a show, it was they were going to see Russell Peters and they were going to go see him at Madison Square Garden or they were going to go see him at some crazy theater and they only got word of it because some Indian promoter was doing some crazy Indian promotion. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. But now it's like everybody knows about stand-up comedy. So, Prachi, you must be hearing this and thinking, you talk about therapy, like the the British Empire um, slant on therapy, right? Or so this must be very, like for you to hear this, this must be like another way out for, for Indian culture comedy well i guess what do you mean by like another way out like it's therapeutic mm. it's, yeah. it's not the traditional form of therapy like it's not like just sitting in front of someone but it's actually like going out and hearing could be changing you know like reading a book is a choice right but if you go to a show and you don't know someone's on the show that looks like you and they're talking about things that you don't talk about, that has to be on some level of changing the mindset therapeutically. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think, I think it, I, th- I mean, I think anytime you see art, like I think the power of art and I consider comedy an art form. Oh, anytime you see the, I, th- I think that's what art does. It helps us access our emotions and what's in here and kind of transfer those into the like Im- into another human being I think there's something like really magical like I'm, I know how corny this what I'm saying sounds but like it like it it I really believe that that there's you know we're all so isolated in our own experiences but art is the thing that gets beyond you know, our bodies and our skin and, and everything that like and everything that's going on in here and transfers the emotions of what we're feeling into other people and vice versa. And I think that's what's so powerful about it. And so like, you know, it doesn't, it, it's great to see this, this shift culturally. Um, but I think that also speaks to the, the generational like changes where people in our parents' generation didn't have the opportunity to really do things like this. Like they, like they didn't, you know, it is in a, in a way like a privilege that I can be, that I can make this choice to be a writer. It's not something that like my dad or my mom could really have conceived of doing because of their position as immigrants and what they needed to do to, to make ends meet in this country. So with that though, like certainly I think, so yeah. So for me, it's like a privilege to be able to do this, but, and also like, I think, um, all art forms are a way to help us access our emotions and fe- and that's part of why that representation with, I don't think all representation is necessarily like this magical thing, <laughs> as we can see with like people like Vivek Ramaswamy, like he does, that man does not represent anything about me. But like, I think when we use it to really articulate what we're feeling and experiencing, that can be really powerful for for other people in a way for them to feel seen and access their emotions and help them process as well. 
Yes, because I did not know, like I was reading this quote, the British Empire turned mental health care into a sly, devastating colonial tool used to assert white supremacies in its colonies. In India, the British established lunatic asylums where they rounded up South Asians they deemed to be in violation of Victorian social norms. And as their power expanded, they turned these psychiatric hospitals into for-profit labor camps. Therapy was not about helping an individual gain a sense of peace or happiness, happiness, but about harnessing their productivity and bludgeoning them into a numb, compliant subject. The specific horrors and brutal psychic violence have largely been forgotten or overlooked, but the repercussions of it remain in our minds and bodies. And I, I didn't, I never thought about how that may be difficult. Then, if you know that to go to therapy. Yeah. So, so that was an excerpt that was published on Guernica and that was a small part of a passage that ultimately like I didn't end up including in the book, but I am hoping to like in a future edition, but you know, I was really like, so therapy is really stigmatized in a lot of communities. I mean, in general, like mental health, mental illness is stigmatized still like in America. But then the stigma is even worse in immigrant communities and in communities of color because there are real consequences to being seen by, you know, by white America or by others as mentally ill. And that can lead to surveillance, that can lead to violence. We know that like the way that mental health crises, like uh, like if you're like a person of color or, pro- or like we've seen so many black men be like having a mental health crisis and instead they end up murdered by the police. Like, so there are real, real consequences to be seen as mentally ill. And one of the, and, and when it comes to Asian American communities, we are the ethnic community least likely to seek mental health care in America. It is so stigmatized in our cultures. But one of the reasons, there's so many reasons for why that's the case. And I always, and there's no good statistics on South Asian Americans with mental, in mental health. Like it, it's just, we're really under-researched because of this model minority myth, because there's a prevailing perception that we just don't have mental health issues. Um, so then that adds to the pressure to, to appear a certain way. And ironically, that then creates mental health pressure or, or mental health issues because we're, we're struggling with this dissonance of how to appear a certain way and hide anything that seems imperfect or flawed. So one of the things that I like that part of the hist- our history is often not talked about. And I didn't even really know that actually until I started doing research for the book. And I wanted to understand where does the stigma against mental illness come from? And one of the places that, where I think it comes from is the whole concept of mental health has been oftentimes in the West is used to assert white supremacy or to as a way to pathologize our own cultural backgrounds. So that's the way it was used in the British Empire in India and across South Asia. And and honestly, like we have such a Eurocentric mental health care system, a system that is so quick to diagnose but does not acknowledge 
the systemic or environmental factors that could be contributing to why a person feels this way. So if you're, you know, a black or brown person in this country and you feel that we're, we're so used to being gaslit, right? Like about our own experiences of like, is this racist? Is that not racist? Like when we know, (laughs) and the mental health care system doesn't really acknowledge the impacts of that, the psychological impacts of living under that pressure. And then when you come in as an immigrant or a child of immigrants and you have your own set of cultural values or understandings or confusion about what that means, and you're coming into a mental health care system that's very focused on a white patient population um, that has as one way of viewing things, it can be even more alienating and more pathologizing. So I really wanted to, in my book, like help people see that mental health isn't this one, it's not a one size fits all thing. Uh, It's a deeply personal, it's deeply personal that we have a mental health care system that doesn't really acknowledge the realities and the complexities of many of our experiences. And, and to think of mental health as not as brokenness, but as, as our ability to be connected to ourselves and to each other. And then when you think about it from that way, I think that can help destigmatize it a little bit and make it seem like it's not something that's wrong with you. It's something that we are living in a system that doesn't really take care of us. And then it becomes easier to approach mental health and the idea of mental illness and and get the kind of care that can actually be supportive, which is really hard in the system that we have. I've got to hop in about three minutes. I want to quickly shout out the South Asian Americans for Change. It's a group that I'm a part of, my, of charity co-founded by my cousin and his wife and a few other people that are looking to pioneer in the, the mental health space for South Asian Americans. They're addressing a lot of the stuff that Prachi just talked about. For me, my own activism in terms of destigmatizing mental health as a, a thing in the South Asian community is just being willing and able to talk about my own stuff, right? Like I'm not here to proselytize and tell people you should all get therapy and it's good for you and it changed your life and you're stupid if you don't. It's more like, look, I do it. It's definitely beneficial. I don't have any mental illnesses that I'm diagnosed with and I still go... Because you know, this is a joke, but it's not a joke, is that it's like a leg up on the competition if, we're, if we're, emotional intelligence is a competition, right? Like, I think part of therapy and part of mental illness is being destigmatized that's just marketed so poorly. And that comes from, in, in no small part, from what Brachi was talking about. Like, the institutions that exist are, exist because mental health was at some point seen as something to turn into a productivity tool. Like if you are crazy, you can't be productive. You can't do this. You can't do that. And crazy, I'm using sorry as a blanket term, but in terms of assigning people a label, whereas really like it can just make you a better everything. And on a day-to-day basis and from a micro perspective and from a macro perspective. And I think if it's marketed in that way, as opposed to, trying to correct something it's actually trying to enhance you like that is the that is a slight shift that i'm trying to make for anyone that's even remotely interested in listening is that like you can, i feel good like i as a human like before i entered therapy i've been through a few things um, in my life that would would shake people and have impacted people negatively around me my cousins for example but together like that aside, like it still feels like, oh, I know there's things I can improve in my life. 
Um, and that's why I was seeking therapy, and that's why I went out to seek it. Um, not to say something was wrong, but I want to make things more right. And I think that subtle shift in, in perception of what therapy is is what I'm trying to put out into the world. I'm in my small the hundreds of people I talk to on a weekend basis, like if if I can change one person's mind about it or one one dad's light change mind about it, uh, it might impact his kid's life at some point. Then I've done my job. You know, my favorite moment, one of my favorite moments, uh, what's it called? When I was on stage in New Jersey uh, this past summer, there was a, an Indian dad there with his with his with his two daughters, and but one of the daughters was. I just put this clip up not too long ago on YouTube, but. There was a, da- a dad there, 55, 60 years old, with his daughter, who was like 30 and drunk, and she was a doctor. And I was talking to them about therapy, and I asked him if he went to therapy. And to my surprise, he said yes. I was expecting a, a, a no. And for like a 55-year-old Indian dad to say yes, he's going to therapy. And I was like, why? He's like, I'm stressed. I'm like, you've just taken two huge steps for the Indian community. You have no idea for like a 55 year old Indian guy to admit in front of his daughters that he's stressed and he goes to therapy like that, that to me signals we are shifting in a very a good direction when even like that was stress is not a word Indian dads say. And so that was like a big moment for me. Like, Oh shit. Okay. We're doing things here and maybe I'll stay on this path to like talk about this and have this conversation with my generation, generation above and definitely the generation after. Awesome. Now, Nemesh, tell our listeners where they can find you. For sure. Um, you can find me on tour in your city. Uh, I'm coming to every city on the, on the planet in America, Norfolk, Atlanta, D.C., New York City, New York City, Madison Square Garden at the end of the year, uh, Philadelphia, everywhere. Um, fastandloosetour.com, fastandloosetour.com. And with friends like us, You'll want to go to therapy. We'll make you. We'll make you want to talk about things. <laughs> All right. All right. So, what are some of the takeaways that a family that's reading your book or that should get from reading your book? You've kind of mentioned it already, but that's kind of going through what you've been through. Immigrants in this country, like, are really taught that, like, are really forced to sort of be the vehicle for the American dream, right? Like. Everyone who comes into this country is sold this idea that America is the land of opportunity and that you can make it here just through hard work. And I think immigrants are under so much pressure to buy into that dream um, and really like because they are leaving something behind and they have to make it worth that. Right. So they do everything they can to try to get there and achieve and live in the way that America advertises you can live here. And oftentimes what happens because of that is that they transfer the hopes and and dreams onto their children. So like the children really come to embody that same dream and want to make good on the idea of like, well, we gave up so much to be here and want to pass all of that ambition and all of that stability and success onto you so you can have a good life and you can succeed here and you can make it. And so it comes from like this really well-intentioned place. But I think what I've seen in my own experience is that what the, the, there's a hidden side of that dream that we don't often know how to talk about. And that is, the pressure 
that to both buy into that dream and to succeed and achieve. And then when we pass that down to our kids, there's a cost that we pay and it can be really toxic. Um, because then we prioritize success and external validation and high achievement over everything else. And like what happened in my family is that we lost the ability to really be vulnerable because anything that was a flaw, anything that was imperfect, anything that didn't, didn't, um, you know, adhere to this image that we knew we were supposed to portray was buried and suppressed. And we didn't know how to talk about these things. And we didn't know how to acknowledge our feelings with each other and hold that complexity um, because we weren't allowed to be complex in America. And so I hope that my book can one, like illuminate this and and show the darker side and, and the price that we pay, but also dispel some of the shame for that because so many of us are living with that and feel as if it's our fault. And I hope that my book can show people that this is actually a system that we live in that is designed to make us feel this way. And when I show how that works, I, I hope that it can empower people to then make different choices. And it, it goes back to that, what we were talking about denialism, where if we can actually acknowledge that these problems exist, then suddenly we have the power to change them, to do something about them. So it's a, it's a very heavy book, but I think it's also a very hopeful book. Yes. This is an important question that I wanted to ask you. This is why I'm keeping you on, is because of the migrant situation, right? Now, we we talked about this previously about immigrants coming to America and adopting sort of a white, uh, subscribing to white and not really looking at the black struggle, right, mm-hmm. as an example. And I know you use W.E. Du Bois in your book. Can you tell me why you felt the need to use that in this book? Well, I, I use the term double consciousness, uh, which is, which was his, uh, his phrase, this idea of having two realities, um, two lives that we lead as, I mean, he's obviously writing as a black man, um, the, the double consciousness of race of where you have your lived experience and then you have the awareness of the expectation around you, um, and how you're perceived. And so I thought that was like a really poignant, descriptor and, 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 and ultimately, I mean, the reason that I, so like in the book, I, I talk about the model minority myth and the origins of the model minority myth are rooted in anti-blackness. And so one of the things I wanted to do with this book is show that so often as uh, we're, we're, when you, when the whole like idea of a good immigrant versus a bad immigrant comes from this place of anti-blackness. And it's pitting communities of color against each other because it's saying if you portray yourself this way, which is in proximity to whiteness, you will appear as good. If you don't adhere to these things, you are you are siding with blackness. You are bad. So um, I really wanted to, you know, this this book is really about the model minority myth. And, and the ways in which we are pressured to buy into it and why ultimately that is so detrimental. And so I, I'm showing it through the book how like we really tried to assimilate into whiteness. And there's a line in the book where I ask like, what if we 
had learned how, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exactly what I said, but like, what if instead of using our ethnicity as a way to belong into whiteness, we had used it as a way to understand why we were treated so differently in the first place. And that's a reference to the solidarities that, you know, what communities of color should have. And historically, like when they do have that, um, that we're, we're stronger together. And that's how we really fight racial injustice. And that's how we increase civil liberties. But because of the way that our communities are divided under whiteness and the closer one community is to proximity to whiteness, the less likely they are to have those solidarities. And I see that a lot within the Indian American community because of our position as quote unquote model minorities, we are, and I'm talking specifically here about like Hindu Indian Americans, which are make up, I think about 50% of Indian Americans and Indian Americans are amongst the wealthiest and most educated immigrant group in the country. And a lot of that has to do with the selection process. And before the civil rights movement, um, there were quotas in place for how many Asians could come in. And before the quota system, there was actually an outright ban. So all of that changed in the civil rights movement through the activism of black activists. And because in the, through that era, the Soviet union was pointing to the U S and look and being like, well, well, the U.S. is segregated, that how can you call yourself a true democracy? So it was those things that caused America to change its policy on immigration and even let, you know, my answers, my ancestors into this country. So if we don't understand our history, um, it's, it's easy to not know where you fit in. And a lot of people feel pressured to buy into this myth and it, and it, it can offer the illusion of protection, but one of the things I wanted to show with my book is, you know, if if the civil rights argument isn't, isn't enough for you, you know, it's I want to show people within my own communities that, like, there's also a real personal cost to you to buying into this. Um, but, yeah, so, so it was important to me to make that reference and to show how throughout the book, like, we tie into these solidarities and these struggles because the myth that we are pressured to buy into is a myth that is rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness. I love it. I'm so, because I was going to ask you why would like someone like myself read the book, right? And this is why, you know, this is a very important, uh, this is, it's just never, it's not said enough. And um, it was the first time I actually heard it on the last uh, few episodes back, I had a young lady, but she wrote a book about ma- the misuse of Martin Luther King's quotes. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, yes. yeah, I see, I see like Republic, I mean, I see Democrats doing this too, but I see so many Republicans like using his quotes to justify things that are the exact opposite. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And she, it's a great book. It's Hajar Yazda. Yazda, yes, Hajar Yazda. She's an assistant professor of sociology, and um, she wrote this book about the, the struggles for the people's king, how politics transformed the memory of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a really great book, and it, you were reminding me a lot of that conversation. And, you know, because I had asked that question sort of like about Hassan. I didn't want to really get into a conversation about him today, but you know, like the importance of what he just did. And, and he, I know he's trying to, he's 
did a full length uh, explanation of that, but you know, um, and it was just like, cause I, I think about the migrants in New York city coming in and I wonder if these conversations are going to be different for them in the way that they adopt their attitudes, how they're viewing white supremacy and do they see what the Republicans are specifically doing to them? Are they, are they seeing that? Are they hearing it? And are, is that going to last <laughs> or mm-hmm. is, is their goal to come to America unknowingly white, you know, un- unknowingly to be white, you know, cause that is the goal, right? To, to achieve what white men like I saw something this weekend I know I'm saying a lot of different things in in a paragraph but um I saw something this weekend about how advertisement has always been used for to appeal to white men mm-hmm. in the direction of white men and I never really thought about that and I and, and it's it makes sense now that the um the commercials with the interracial couples seem to be pissing off white men the most like i always hear them talking about like they they joke about it's like oh another like interracial couple in a commercial and i'm like why is that bothering you (laughs) and i go oh because it's always been advertisement has always been geared toward for you yeah you know not for us for you know um anyway i'm getting off on a tangent here um but i want to ask you this about peace of mind because you know, we just had a tragedy. Matthew Perry, friend star, dies at 54. And someone said something to me that resonated with his conversations, you know, about how he had everything you would think. And yet mm-hmm. the hole was not filled. Like, yeah. you know, you would think like at that level of celebrity and we don't know how he passed, so I'm not saying anything here, but his whole book for the past year is about the struggle with mental health yeah. and uh, happiness, you know. it's And it's often, like, curious to me, too, because I know a lot of celebrities who I am still look at and I go, hmm, you don't seem happier. And yeah. You still look very insecure, so um, I guess my question to you is, Prachi, is like when you, you were faced with that question of, you know, money or happiness, like how do you grapple with that? I think that I've learned at a fairly young age, and I feel very lucky for learning this lesson early in life, um, is that all my experiences have taught me that, look, Poverty is traumatic. I think there have have been several studies that show that poverty is a form of trauma. And and when you don't have basic resources or money for basic resources, um, that leaves a mark on you. And that is hard. But what we don't talk about a lot is, or, you know, the, the, the corollary to that or the assumption that we often make is that when you have money for all those things and you have even more money, you will be happy. Like we, we, and, and that's actually not true. I, if you have enough money, there are research studies that show that if you have enough money to a certain point, so where you can pay for basic needs, um, you have stability that can give you that, that does wonders for your happiness. 
But much money beyond that is actually diminishing returns and happiness sort of plateaus. And I think that, you know, living in a capitalist system, capitalism runs on lack. So you get into this trap of if you don't have enough money to pay for basic things and you learn that money will, you know, give you that stability, you get addicted to the cycle of needing more money to pay for these things because you learn that this will give you stability. But then what happens once you have that stability and you're still in the cycle of needing to get more? Um, and that's the experience that I had growing up was that part. Like my dad grew up low income and he saw his parents, you know, struggling to make ends meet. I did not have that experience. I grew up middle class and, you know, lower middle class to upper middle class. And, but what I saw is that when we did have, we finally had achieved all of that. We, you know, I saw how hard my parents worked. I saw how hard my brother was working and what I also saw was that I had bought into this, this whole idea. And I thought that with all this hard work came happiness. And when I graduated college, I went, you know, I went into finance and got into management consulting in the middle of a recession. And um, I was engaged to a doctor and my brother had an internship at SpaceX. Um, and my dad was a surgeon. And at the time where I thought, okay, we are good. Like we've made it. We should all be happy now was the lowest point in our lives till then. Um, at least in my life, like that was the summer my brother attempted suicide. Um, and, and then my dad did too, a few months later. And what I saw was that despite how much they had accomplished, um, they were still so miserable. And that really began making me question this idea that we're taught because, the thing is that when we money keeps us on this, uh, this cycle of like external validation, we think that that job or that title or that next thing we accomplish is going to make us happy. But the reality is that I think it keeps us, um, sorry, I'm like not being very eloquent right now. No, you're I, being I very eloquent. Track of what I really wanted to say. Um, cause I feel so strongly about this yeah. and, what it does is it teaches us how to be in tune with what society wants from us. Like, like capitalism is geared towards productivity. It's like what Imesh was saying. It's, it's about extracting labor from us. So it's designed to want us to work hard, to get this money, to do these things. And it tells us if we do all that, then we're going to be happy. But real happiness doesn't come from these things. It comes from a sense of internal peace. And if you're constantly, constantly striving for the next thing, worrying about what other people think, trying to do this thing that impresses other people, that's the opposite of happiness because that's saying, that's putting your self-worth externally. That's putting your self-worth in the hands of systems, jobs, people who you can never control. You can never you never have any control over what those people think of you. And so I actually think that being a celebrity um, is really hard. Uh, you know, I, I actually have a lot of compassion for, for celebrities because it's a very unnatural thing to be in the public eye and you don't really own your own identity anymore. And I imagine like, you know, I, not, I, I have no desire to become a celebrity for that reason. It's just not, not, not that anyone's like trying to turn me into one, but like, it's, it's so dependent on other people. The, I, the definition of celebrity is, other people, Liking you know, you. 
liking you and you have no control over that. So now suddenly your entire image and your sense of self and your self-worth is reliant on all these strangers who don't actually know who you are. And that is, that is, I think that's a, that can, can be a really traumatic thing actually. Um, when all your self-worth, so, so if you're a celebrity and your self-worth doesn't come from yourself and it comes from this image of you, then of course you're going to be struggling. Um, and I think the challenge is how do you let your self-worth in the system that we have, how do you cultivate that from within you? How do you generate that within yourself? And it gets harder and harder to do the high, the more notoriety someone has. I think that gets harder to do when we're deep, you're deeply entrenched in capitalism and you believe that yourself, your self-worth is tied to how much money you make or what kind of car you drive or, you know, the, and we live in a society that teaches that, um, to value other people and value ourselves based on these things. So it's really hard to divest from the system, but I don't, I really do not believe that anyone will be at peace. Anyone will be at peace if they get their value from that external system. That's, that's a recipe for discontentment and a, a lot of like mental health problems as well will come from that type of um, engaging with the world in that way. Yeah. I want to say Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. Is it Michelle? Michelle Williams. Yes. So Michelle Williams, this is the reason I even put this in here, but mostly because of your book too. She said something this weekend about, and she's a celebrity, right? Imagine Destiny's Child and Beyonce is the one that sort of like is the one, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And she talks about going through this depression. She's constantly putting it out there and she's constantly talking about peace of mind. And she said that if you want to talk about peace, do not come or success. She said, don't talk to me about your house figures, your cars. If you want to talk about success, I want to talk about peace of mind. And it just resonated with me when she said that this weekend. And I was just like, thank you. Because she was on like a a podcast that talks about money, 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 saving money, investing in money, and how all those things are necessary for generational wealth. But she says, let's really talk about your peace of mind, though. Because you can have all these things and not have that. And I remember in in talking about my show that I was developing about how important peace of mind is and no one understood. They were like that. I don't know what that means. They kept saying that to me. I don't know. That seems like a, like an esoteric term or it's just too broad and it's too out there. And I was like, well, but maybe you don't know what it means because you don't know what it is. Yeah. You don't know that my goal has always been that. And that doesn't resonate with you because the goal to them was like, oh, Marina Franklin wants a house in Vermont, you know? Right. Uh, but why? You know, it's like peace of mind because I could be a very successful, you know, like Chris Rock comedian. I would never be happy on that level of star if I'd never had peace of mind. Right. I would just never, I would never want it. And I think, to be to be honest, I think the reason that I sort of am not is because I've always maintained that peace of mind, no matter what, no matter what stage. It's always a, a level of awareness and checking in with myself of, are you genuinely happy with what you're doing 
right now with the level you're at? Are you? And if you can't answer that, then you need to re go back to the drawing board and figure out what it was that got you into comedy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I completely agree with you. Like I, I, I too have made decisions in my career that I think a lot of people would look at my career and say it's, it is a very conventionally successful career, but I will say like along the way, I've made so many decisions that from a success standpoint are not advisable. Like I've straight up walked away from quote unquote successful jobs with nothing lined up. Like I, and it was exactly what you said about peace of mind and, and, and about being able to be authentically me, because like at the end of the day, as artists, if we can't approach our work with authenticity, then what are we doing? Like, what are we saying? What is the point? And um, like, there's a line in my book where I, I realize, like, so, so similar to like what I guess what Michelle said, like where I realize that success to me isn't about status or who I know or what my job title is, as I was as I learned learned it to be, but success was the ability to be myself in the world, to move through this world that I think forces us to, you know, assimilate or want us, wants us to be this very specific way, often dictated by whiteness and to resist that and instead say, well, what, what do I want? Who am I? What feels right to me? And to honor that. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I don't always get it right. I struggle. I definitely struggle with like anxiety and depression sometimes, but I have so much more peace, like knowing that I'm moving through the world as the person that I really am and want to be rather than what I think people might expect me to be, because I don't, I can't control the latter. And I don't even really know what that means. <laughs> like, all I really know is what, what feels right to me and how to do that. And I'm still always learning about it, which is kind of cool, actually. Well, I listen, you're very cool, Prachi. And I thank you so much for joining us today, me today. And I'm so glad that I have you as a friend. Yes, let's go get donuts soon. Oh, I think we will get donuts <laughs> soon. Yes, you will see me scarfing down the donuts. Yes, we have to do that because it's time. It and time. Um, so tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, so my book is They Call This Exceptional. Please consider buying it and or donating it to your local library. And you can find me mostly on Instagram at prachigu, P-R-A-C-H-I-G-U. Uh, my website, prachi.co. And with, let's see, for friends like us, with friends like us, you can always talk about your struggles while eating donuts. <laughs> And, um, yeah, <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. Thank you. Pebbles and donuts. Yes. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can have old friends return. And it's like we've been talking the whole time because you're so awesome and so cool. I think both you and Nimish, this episode is going to help so many. And definitely go out and get Prachi's book because it's exceptional. <laughs> Check us Check out. Check us out.